This episode of Brass Bonanza is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season. Everything from NFL and bowl season to esports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. We're the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite leagues and events. Head to betonline.eg to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. Bet online, where the game starts. Today on Brass Bonanza, a Whalers podcast, we talk to Gordy Roberts, who was part of the franchise from 1975 to 1980. Roberts signed with New England as a 17-year-old when the Whalers were part of the WHA, a signing that stirred the world of pro hockey. He talks to me about that, as well as what it was like being part of the franchise during the merger, as well as playing with his namesake, Gordy Howe, and Dave Keon and others while with the Whalers. A fun conversation that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. That's up right now on Brass Bonanza. Gordy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Want to start off with this. Is it true you were named after Gordy Howe? I imagine as a Michigan kid, it's kind of a no-brainer, but at the same time, I, I want to ask right off the top. I was, yep. Yeah, I grew up in Detroit, uh, born in 1957. Uh, our family's a little spread out. I've got three older brothers, the oldest being 19. Uh, when I was born, uh, him and my younger brother, who at that time, Doug, who played with the Whalers, was, uh, I think, 15. Both of them were stick boys for the visiting team at the Red Wing games. So, and Doug played for the junior wings right out of that same arena. So there's definitely a connection there. And then the day I was born, my mom was a big movie fan, wanted to name me uh, Clifford. And uh, my two brothers kind of stepped in and uh, <laughs> kind of twisted her arm. Yeah, you know, we, my oldest brother just passed away about three months ago. And one of the things that the eulogy I was, you know, thinking of was uh, how come my mom didn't get Clifford as a middle name? You know, <laughs> she didn't even get that. It was Gordon Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get to the rest of your career in a second, but when you retired in 96, I noticed you retired as the last active player to play as a teammate of Gordy Howe. Now, he came out of retirement to play a shift or two with the Detroit Vipers in 97, I think it was. But for you, that must have been one of those great full circle hockey moments that you were named after a guy and then you were the last guy to play for him as a play with him as a teammate. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely three years as a teammate. And, uh, you know, but I, I would say my biggest memory of Gordy was uh, my first year with the Whalers. So I was 18, kind of went through a transition coming out of junior. And uh, Harry Neal, I think, took over about halfway through. And somehow he decided to put me at uh, center. And we played uh, Houston Arrows in a seven-game series. And uh, I have some great memories of that series where, uh, you know, they ended up beating us in the final game. But we played a six game in Hartford where uh, we ended up beating them. And uh, I was playing center a lot to face offs against Gordy. And he was 46 at the time. And he, I mean, obviously each year he got older, he got a touch slower, but uh, at 46, he was their number one center. He had Mark on the left side and Rich Preston on the right side. And we played the final seventh game and he ended up uh, being first star. He had, uh, we played a three o'clock game after a Saturday night game in Hartford. And uh, he ended up with three points and they ended up beating us, I don't know, four, two or something like that. What was the secret with him? Why? Why? And I've had a lot of guys tell me different things about the way he played and the way he kept his body in shape. But from your perspective, you were a teammate. What was his secret? 
Well, I think mentally, uh, you know, there's a great saying, Ken Dryden had one of his books that uh, it's not the legs that go first, it's the head telling the legs they don't want to go anymore. And I think in Detroit, maybe after all those years and, you know, a little frustration, some injuries and things like that, you know, like all players, I mean, you know, you know, we start out learning the game when Hartford, where I started and then the middle is kind of your peak years, you know, how good you can be. And then, you know, later, you know, we all slow down a little bit, like I said, and, uh, you know, and I, and I think from Gordy's standpoint, all of a sudden he got so revitalized playing with his two sons and, mm-hmm. you know, just that whole atmosphere. And, you know, he just loved, you know, obviously the dressing room, the whole part of hockey and, uh, you know, carried over into how well he played. You signed with the Whalers as a 17-year-old, which was a really a groundbreaking moment in the history of professional hockey. The NHL had a policy, basically, of not signing 17-year-olds at the time. Your move really had a major impact on the business. Tell me a little bit about that process and maybe the impact that your brother specifically had on that move. Yeah, I mean, I, I think initially the uh, Whalers were interested in Doug, who had uh, already been playing about eight years of pro hockey, and uh, his contract was up with Detroit. And, you know, that was their focus. And I got my dog over here if uh, she <laughs> happens to come in the camera. But, uh, um, you know, I, I really didn't expect to, you know, turn pro at 18 years old. I'd only played one year out in the Western Junior League. And, uh, you know, I was the only American in the whole league at the time. And, uh, it was definitely an adjustment. And, you know, I, I basically held out, you know, I didn't hold out. I just wasn't ready. And I told my brother, you know, the first two or three weeks they wanted to, they talked about signing me. They knew who I was. I played in the all-star game the year before we went to the semifinals in the Western league. And, you know, I played a guy against guys like Brian Tranche, Brian Sutter, and, you know, it was a great league. And, you know, then, then my brothers kind of, you know, put the guilt trip on me a little bit that I didn't go to college. And if I break my leg and different things like that, you're going to pass up a, an opportunity in a long-term young contract. There's a lot of guys, you know, the WHA were signing at the age of 18. And, you know, that key word that kind of stayed with me that was a little hard uh, was expectation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I got better with it as the days went on, but it was a little bit of a struggle that first year. I read a story in Sports Illustrated when you were 19 about you, written by Peter Gammons, of all people. Uh, Gordy Roberts wears Levi's everywhere, drives a van, drinks beer, and catches a, a Fleetwood Mac concert wherever he can. I, I imagine as a 19-year-old, it, it must have been a difficult transition. I, how how tough was it, and then how much maybe, I don't want to say easier, did your brother's presence make it, but how much how much did he assist in making that move to the WHA? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that uh, all players, your rookie season, you know, you're they're always teasing you and kind of on you. You know, there's there's definitely a uh, a rookie initiation type thing that they like to bug you about. I got my head shaved in junior, so I wasn't looking forward to that again. <laughs> and, uh, I think junior would have been the first year in the last three uh, during my step up from junior B to tier two junior to tier one, where I would have actually been with the same team two years in a row. So all of a sudden I was, you know, signed with Hartford and, uh, you know, I don't want to hear any poor me in that. I mean, I, I went from working uh, that summer in my brother's pool business, uh, earning probably uh, eight bucks an hour to having a contract like this thrown at me. And, you know, it's a lifestyle change and, you know, having, uh, you know, my fancy van and, you know, opportunity to, you know, do things and so on. Uh, I grew up a little fast, you could say. But, uh, you know, I look at my time with the Whalers on one, one respect, almost like a four-year degree. 
of what I learned. Uh, you know, I didn't go to college and, and get that, but I definitely learned a lot in my four, first four years in uh, Hartford. Well, that's interesting you, you bring that up. I was going to ask a little bit later on, but but I can ask you now. You went on to a really long and, and distinguished career in professional hockey. How much did your time in Hartford set you up for success down the road? Yeah, I think the WHA uh, in general, you know, I mean, you look at the Birmingham Bulls and, you know, from Wayne Gretzky to Mark Messier to Rod Langway. I mean, you know, there was a lot of really high end players that started out their career in the world hockey and, uh, you know, and they have that opportunity to play with, you know, Gordie Howe and Bobby Hall a little bit and play against those guys. And, you know, to see a player like Dave Keon who played, you know, I don't know at that time he played maybe 16, 17 years in the NHL and, you know, just the respect, you know, that they have for the game and so on and that, that, you know, maybe I didn't get it when I was 18 to 22, 23, but I definitely got it as my career went on and all the experiences and what I learned. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, on one hand, it, it would have been great to, you know, spend 15 years like Ron Francis, you know, was kind of a great icon in Hartford. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I ended up playing with Ron later in my career and we won two Stanley cups on the same team in that, but, uh, you know, it just took a while, I guess, you know, to, to kind of learn the ropes of, uh, everything. The, the Canadians drafted you in 77, but you decided to stick with New England in the WHA. I've talked to a handful of guys, including Larry Plow and, and Bruce Landon and uh, some, some, some other guys who were drafted by Montreal who ultimately decided to stick in New England. What was that decision like? And again, maybe the, the fact that you, were play, you had a chance to play alongside your brother in New England, did that factor into your decision at all? Well, I think there was a lot of backroom deals that were going on. You know, when the 79, when the four teams came into the league, I think technically they, they said that they had uh, two, excuse me, two players mm -hmm. that you could uh, protect. Mm -hmm. And then you also had some different deals going on behind the scenes in that. And I had signed a five-year five contract with Hartford when I first signed. So technically, you know, when Montreal drafted me, you know, the WHA, you know, was, was still, you know, playing well. And, you know, I wasn't ready to go and I couldn't have gone because I had three years left on my contract. So you know, I think that had, you know, a lot to do with it there. And then once the, uh, you know, the rumors and they started turning true that final season, I think we only had six teams in the uh, world hockey in 78, 79. And, it's kind of funny. I mean, I was in Florida at the meetings and so on. I had an opportunity to go out uh, on kind of a an evening boat cruise, we'll call it. And there was a lot of sponsors through the NHL and a lot of alumni and so on and that. But I ran into Wayne Gretzky and uh, had an opportunity to, you know, talk to him. And we went back to that year. We ended up playing each other 19 times. We were kind of laughing about it. And <laughs> it was really like the old six teams of the 1960s in the NHL and that. And you know, Wayne uh, said, I hated you back then. And I said, well, <laughs> building was mutual, you know, after you play against a guy that good and how many times, you know, the respect that, uh, you know, we probably both had for each other, you know, started that first season. A lot of guys have talked about a wide range of emotion when it came to the merger. Um, you know, a, a lot of guys had a chance to say, look, you know, I can prove myself as a hockey player now at the highest level playing in the NHL. Uh, you know, getting a chance to go head to head with some of the established teams. What was it like for you making that transition from the WHA to the NHL that year? 
Well, again, you know, I mean, I'm glad that I had the four years in the world hockey. You know, I probably would have struggled more if it was would have happened, you know, after my first year as an example in that. But, uh, you know, I, I think the world hockey, I guess if you had to really, you know, looking back at it, you know, it was probably 80% of what the NHL was. You know, I mean, we had a lot of good players, but we, you know, it's, I've coached high school hockey the last few years. And one of the things as a coach, you like when you have a lot of depth. And when your third line is, you know, as good as your second line, you know, you have a good team. And, you know, I would say our first line at the WHA was probably, you know, could easily play in the NHL and so on. And, but it got down a little bit as the depth went down in the forward lines or defensemen and goaltending, that type of thing. So, but, uh, you know, I, I think when we came in, you know, the, the Whalers management did a great job with, you know, the transition of, of veterans and, and guys like a Blaine Stout and Mike Rogers that maybe the first time around had a lot to prove. They didn't, you know, weren't as successful maybe at the NHL level as and they going to WHA, turned their game around with confidence and uh, great ability. And, you know, they, they ended up, you know, to play Montreal Canadiens in the first round of the playoffs was kind of like a, a perfect season and then go around. I mean, you know, kind of rambling here, but my one story when, when I was in Toronto, you know, against the Leafs, you know, they had this, you know, I watched them growing up, you know, hockey night in Canada. And so anyways, we beat the Leafs mm -hmm. and I'm on the bench and I'm part of the three star thing. And I'm sitting there and I got Gordy Howe on one side, Dave Keen on the other side. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> All three of us, you know, and I think I was third star and, I think Gordy was second in the respect of Dave Keon coming back there and having a great game and winning. He was first star. But this, you know, if I could go back in time and just, you know, see that in heaven one day, you know, next to those two guys, <laughs> it was kind of a great memory. Keon strikes me as a guy who was a little bit salty from time to time. You know, you you look at some of the greats of the game and they've been exalted maybe for for lack of a better term. But, but Keon struck me and guys that I've talked to about him as very much of a, you know, hey, he's an old crusty teammate who would always do the right thing. Maybe not necessarily always say the right thing, but he would always do the right thing. What was it like playing alongside him? No, that's so you do your homework, uh, Chris. Uh, that's uh, kind of <laughs> describing Dave uh, pretty good, you know. But uh, I did play against him. He was with Minnesota Fighting Saints, uh, I think, the first year or whatever. And, you know, I I would say two players, Bob Clark and Dave Keon, from a when they would dump the puck in your corner, they just had a way of forechecking you that you had no way of getting out of it. <laughs> and they were so smart in the way they played as, you know, great veteran players in that. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, I mean, Dave, you know, he definitely, you know, let you know that, he, you know, who he was and, and the great career that he had. And, and Stanley Cup meant so much to him and winning it. And, you know, we never had an opportunity to win an APCO cup together. And I think we went to the finals against Winnipeg the one time, but uh, you know, just a quick story. When I was in Florida last week, the NHL alumni had a, a man of the year, they call it. And Dave Keon was the uh, recipient of that. And there was, you know, Bobby Orr there and different players that, you know, were going to present it to him. Ron Francis was there that morning at a breakfast. Dave Keon got COVID about three days before that and wasn't able to be there physically. His son was there, but uh, I ran into his son the day before and I, I called Dave and we put together. It's the first time I've talked to him in a long time and it was a great conversation. And I almost felt, you know, with winning two cups myself and he brought that up that I, uh, I'm part of, 
that group. You know what I mean? And back when I was a kid, you know, he looked at me totally different. But, you know, as I got older and I did, you know, end up winning a couple cups, I, I think I, I kind of felt the respect of Dave Keon, which meant a lot to me. There's all sorts of old WHA stories about guys not getting paid and having to practice in high school rinks and kind of teams getting by by the skin of their teeth. But a lot of people who played in Hartford for Howard Baldwin said that they never really experienced a whole lot of that because Howard was able to, for whatever reason, keep everything going, keep the lights on, keep the trains running. What was your experience like playing on a team owned by Howard Baldwin? Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate, uh, you know, not only to, you know, be young with with Howard Baldwin. And I remember going to his house uh, for some uh, team parties a little bit uh, in West Hartford that, uh, you know, were, was was interesting and so on and that. And, uh, you know, he was a great promoter, which he had to be. I mean, the WHA was always a step behind the NHL and, they have owners like Howard that, uh, you know, constantly tried to, you know, one up and promote in different ways to, you know, to, uh, and, you know, and then at the end to be one of those four teams. I mean, you know, especially after the roof collapse and everything that happened in Hartford there during, the, you know, 1978 to 80. Uh, you know, there were just so many obstacles in his way that he just kept, you know, we, we can get around this. We can we can beat this. And I think that, uh, you know, he definitely proved that. And. You know, and then I was fortunate in Pittsburgh uh, the second year. He was part of that ownership group, and I got to know him at a, a different level, uh, you know, 14 years later or whatever it was. You won back-to-back cups with the Penguins in 91 and 92 in the wake of the Ron Francis trade from Hartford to Pittsburgh. It wasn't the only reason, but it wasn't completely coincidental that that was one of the things that kind of got Pittsburgh over the top, in, in my estimation. What sort of impact, both on and off the ice, did Francis have when he arrived to join the Penguins? Yeah, I mean, uh, Craig Patrick, you know, I mean, that was one of the greatest hockey trades of all time. I mean, nothing to take away from Zarley Zalapsky. And I think John Cullen ended up having some health issues. And, you know, from their perspective with the Whalers, and, you know, I ended up getting into pro scouting uh, with Montreal for eight years. So I kind of have a feel, you know, when you're doing the homework and, you know, you decide to, you know, hit that lever that uh, we're trading this guy for that guy is always a big decision. And, well, let's just say Pittsburgh definitely won that uh, trade. Uh, you know, I mean, Ronnie Francis coming in and Mario is the number one center. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better number two center. And then, you know, at times Mario's back or he might be injured or whatnot. I mean, Ronnie actually, you know, obviously was the number one center. And then, uh, you know, and he was just uh, you know, everything people say about him. I mean, his class and the way he uh, carries himself and uh, so on. I mean, he was definitely a pro's pro. And then to have all his – I would say, you know, of all the players, you know, we, you know, all get uh, tested. And guys want to intimidate you and so on. I mean, hockey, uh, you got to prove yourself if you want to be a man to, to play in a man's league, I guess. And Alf was kind of one of the toughest players I ever played with because no matter what uh, guys did to him or, you know, he wasn't really a fighter, but you never got him off his game. And the way he played, you know, hard against Cam Neely or different guys. I mean, he's got my full respect as a player. One of the things that Chris Nyland told me was he, you hated his guts, but he never backed down. He never turtled. Yeah. He never, he, he was always, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to, you're going to fight with him, he was going to fight. He, you know, he, he was never, he was never one to back down. Right. Yeah. And the other unheralded guy, uh, Grant Jennings, who, uh, you know, I still see his ugly face on Facebook, uh, you know, once in a while. <laughs> I think Grant Jenny knows more people around the league. And, you know, he's just like, you know, a great guy, you know. And 
for him to come into our locker room too and add him, you know, depth and, and toughness and, and what a good guy he was. I mean, you know, he was an underrated part of that trade. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely fun when you look back at uh, different teammates. He also has one of the greatest post-playing jobs, uh, I think, of anyone out there. Flying flying planes over a lot, you know, flying planes in Alaska. He's telling all these stories about where you know he's going where it's fifty degrees below zero, and it's just he's 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 one of those guys. I haven't had a chance to have him on the podcast yet, but I want to because you know he is just chock full of stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely definitely a lot of stories uh, in that uh, mind of his. Uh, <laughs> about it. Uh, I'll tell you one other quick story. It's kind of funny about airplanes and all that. Uh, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine, and at the end of my career, after playing uh, against Chicago Blackhawks for a lot of years in Minnesota, Al Secord was, you know, kind of, you know, uh, one of their toughest players, and we had a lot of battles. I ended up playing my last, one of my last years in the IHL and Chicago Wolves. We played together for a year. And uh, what do you think Al Secord has done in his transition in retirement? <laughs> Any idea? No, no, I don't. <laughs> He's become a pilot for American Airlines. <laughs> and, you know, he's, you know, been at it a long time. One of the guys at the All-Star game had had a hard time getting out of Dallas and he called Al and he wanted a flight report on the airport, and, you know, trying to get out what it was like for, uh, you know, American. So there's a good contact for you. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I, I'm curious, and, and I ask everyone who comes on the podcast the same thing, at the, you know, ultimately as we wrap things up here. Why do you think the Whalers continue to resonate with people 25 plus years after they left for Carolina? Yeah, you know, I, I think part of it is the way the Whalers, you know, their booster club was always great. I mean, to be able to have that booster club stay together. And I think that uh, Howard Baldwin and, you know, when they looked at, can we rebuild this arena in Hartford? And, you know, go on from there after what happened. And, uh, you know, the fans definitely were behind that. And they were the biggest reason that, uh, you know, the, the stadium was rebuilt and the NHL, you know, had a franchise. And, yeah, I just think, you know, as it's gone on through the years and, you know, the good news is Carolina, I mean, old Skip Cunningham was down there, uh, you know, right to the last, you know, talk about a transition of, you know, a, a guy that was connected to both franchises. and things like that. But, uh, you know, the song, the ESPN and, you know, Gordie Howe and, and different people that were part of Hartford and, you know, the Kevin Denines and Ron Francis and Alf and the, in the generation of the, the eighties into the nineties. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm definitely probably a Hartford whaler ball cap that I wear at times. And, you know, people ask me about it and, you know, I, I always, you know, love talking about Hartford and, you know, it's still, uh, definitely uh is, is you know in my heart for sure Gordy, this has been great thank you so much let people know what you're doing these days yeah i kind of stayed in uh, hockey after i played about 20 years and uh when i got done i uh spent five years with the phoenix coyotes kind of in player development assistant coaching and scouting and then uh, ownership change i went to uh, montreal for eight years as a pro scout and uh, so I spent close to 34 years at the pro level doing, you know, various things. And then uh, I got into high school coaching uh, for uh, about the last, uh, you know, coaching this year. I, came, I was out of retirement for a couple of years with COVID and everything else. And the next NHL guy, Dave Maley, is coaching a, a team and he brought me back. And 
yeah, I mean, working with high school kids is, is fun, and that's kind of what I've been doing. And uh, my wife, Marla, and I, who I met a long time ago, we've been married after 42 years. And have two kids and uh, three grandkids, and we're enjoying uh, that uh, chapter in our life right now. It's 65. Gordy, thank you so much. Take care, and hopefully we can we can catch up again very, very soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. One more reminder, this episode of Brass Bonanza has been brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season. Everything from NFL and bowl season to eSports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Bet BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. We're the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite leagues and events. Head to betonline.eg to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts.